Welcome back to this episode of the Stronger by Science Fireside Chat podcast. I am your host, Greg Knuckles, joined uh, as as usual with uh, my temporary guest co-host, Eric Trexler. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing well. Um, so, you know, we haven't done that many fireside chats. We haven't done one in a while. Uh, just as kind of a recap of what we're doing here for new listeners, people who haven't listened to a fireside chat podcast, uh, this is not a fitness podcast. We are two people who work in the fitness industry talking about random stuff. So you send us your questions. We share our hot takes about things wildly outside our realms of expertise uh, try to keep it fun, try to keep it light, and uh, and yeah, that's what we're doing. So um, let's let's launch right into it with a question that is kind of in our wheelhouse. Um, so it's not directly fitness related, but we, you know, we read a lot of exercise science literature, interpret it, that's one of the main things we do for our jobs. Uh, and there was a question about uh, what bothers us the most when we come across it in a study? So we pull up a paper, something jumps off the page at us, and just very much grinds our gears. So do you want to do you want to lead this one off, Drex? What uh what things get under your skin? Yeah, I'd be happy to lead off here. Um, so you know I'm pretty statistically oriented. That's just like the uh, the thing in grad school I really latched onto it was really looking at methods and statistics. Um, and so my my answer is obviously biased in that direction. But two things that really, really get under my skin. One is when there are a lot of irrelevant or unwarranted post hoc tests. And so basically, um, very, you know, broad oversimplification here. You do your main test, you find some interesting effect. And in many cases in the models used in our field, you then have to do some follow up uh comparisons or tests to try to really get to the root of that interesting effect. And more times than I would like to believe possible, I'll look at a paper and the initial analysis makes sense. They use the right model more or less. And there's a very interesting effect. And I'm like, ooh, let's dive in and follow up on this and figure out what's causing this interesting interaction. And the 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 follow-up testing just does not get to the root of it whatsoever. And, and so it, it kind of makes you question if they really interpreted what that interesting interaction was telling them like what the actual theoretical meaning of it was other than just like eh, looks like a low p-value so now i'm just going to kind of recklessly dive into this data so th that's that's the one thing that gets under my skin well so we, we've talked about this before one of the potential reasons for that right is that a lot of people in our field use SPSS to run their stats, and a lot of those more appropriate post-hoc tests aren't possible in SPSS unless you're going to write the code yourself, which most exercise scientists don't do. Right, yeah. So so there's a lot of point-and-click options, but like SPSS, um, the SS part stands for social sciences. Like this, this was not made for... Uh, exercise scientists or people who are doing, you know, randomized controlled trials with longitudinal measurements. Uh, you, you know, you could use it for that, but it's not like the bread and butter. And yeah, the easily available point and click options don't really lead you to the post hocs that would be, or the follow-up tests that would be most interesting and most relevant to the type of designs we typically see. 
And so for that reason, people have to go off script a little bit. I, I, I do get the sense that a lot of people in the field aren't very comfortable writing their own code. So like in SPSS, to be fair, you can totally just write your own code and make those things happen. But I think that's a, it's a barrier or a hurdle that a lot of people don't like to circumvent in the field. Like that is a big leap when you start going from, I point and click my options to, okay, I'm going to get under the hood and start writing code. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't trying to call anyone out. Like, yeah, 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 I yeah. don't, I don't know any programming languages for stat software. I use Jasp for that reason. Like it's, it's another point and click option. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that is, uh, you're totally correct that I, I think that is a, a big contributor is that a lot of the really user-friendly software applications don't make it easy to find the, those really appropriate options. And uh, for that reason, you start to see a lot of comparisons that either aren't relevant to the initial thing that they're attempting to follow up on, or they're just really crudely kind of slapped together. And obviously that is very prone to having some limitations in terms of how well you can slap that together. So yeah, that, that is definitely a contributing factor. So the post-talks, a lot of times you'll see the initial analysis. You go, oh, this is going to be really informative. And then you you keep reading on and you're like, man, there's, there's a lot missing here. Yeah. Um, another thing that drives me nuts, this is more related to meta-analysis. And uh, yeah, so in many cases, you will see someone do something in a meta-analysis that everyone knows you're supposed to do. And so, like, for instance, they'll be like, hey, I am going to present you with a funnel plot. And you go, great. And you look at it, and it is, like, horrifically asymmetrical. Like, there are big problems here that need some very serious interpretation. And they just don't. So they'll, they're like, <laughs> they're like, I understand that you expect me to give you a funnel plot. Yeah. And then you do. And the funnel plot is telling me a lot of stuff. And they never bring it up again, never address the fact that there's horrific asymmetry. And the reason it matters, you know, if there's anybody listening that that reads mass is the last two times I've seen a horrifically asymmetrical funnel plot that was just totally ignored in the interpretation. I go back into the data and I'm like, oh, your effect size is wrong. That's why it was horrifically skewed and, and asymmetrical, which is like, mm. dude, like, use this screening tool and actually follow up and yeah. figure out what happened here. The other time it was like there, there were really important effects in the data that were not modeled into the analysis. And so like that asymmetry was not rampant publication bias. It was a totally unmodeled effect in the data. Mm -hmm. And the thing that's frustrating is that you can, you can kind of tell that they're, they're giving you what they have been told they're supposed to do but they're not looking at it and thinking, what does this actually mean? You know, they're, they're just checking off the box to say, yes, I did it. Are you happy now? And the thing that that's crazy is like the reason you're supposed to do it is because it gives critical information that needs to be considered when you start interpreting the actual conclusions. Mm -hmm. And so to see all the information there and it just get completely ignored, is just like, come on, this is really bad. Yeah, yeah. So those are my two. Uh, what do you got? Yeah. So f for like the five listeners who are still here, uh, we, we really picked a banger to lead this one off. Um, so there, I, I have several. One is is poor presentation of data or really like 
insufficient presentation of data. Um, so on like the poor presentation of data front, one thing that's that's very common in our field is um, to just use like like bar graphs to demonstrate like changes or kind of like pre-post measures. Um, well, I guess histograms. Uh, but yeah, like that's that's pretty common, like bar plots and, and histograms when, at least for me personally, I want to see the individual participant responses. Um, so there are like there are like various types of line charts you can use or just like scatter plots. Um, and that that's kind of like a personal preference type thing, but when when you're basically collapsing, say, 20 subjects worth of data to just like one bar and a standard deviation, like bar coming up off of it, uh, I, I think you miss a lot of the nuance. Um, and I totally get why you would try to collapse a lot of those individual data points into like individual lines and bars if you're dealing with a large clinical trial that has like 400 subjects, because, you know, you're not going to be able to pick out individual data points there. But for, you know, for the, for most of the work in our field that has 25 subjects per group, if you're lucky, like you can show the individual data, you can relay more information in your charts um, and just help people get a better feel for your data set. Um, so I would say that that's kind of like on the poor presentation of data, but then on the insufficient presentation of data, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that would be easy to include in studies that would help provide more information to the reader that most people just simply don't do. And so a good example of this would be, um, two things. So one would be if you're you're getting p-values and you just report like that it is under the significance threshold. So, you know, they'll, they'll report like this was significant, p less than 0.05, which tells you something but not that much. So, for example, if a p-value is like 0.048 or 0.0003, like you interpret those very, very differently because if something is, is just below the significance threshold, it very easily could have resulted by chance. Um, whereas if there's a, a much, much lower p-value, that is probably a more robust and reliable finding. So just like reporting that it's under that threshold doesn't really tell you much. But then the thing that I see all the time that just drives me crazy is when when a study reports like mean changes, but not any measure of variation around it. So, you know... It, it, Almost universally, if you're, say, reporting things pre and post, there will be like a standard deviation or a confidence interval around that number. So, you know, people pre-training squat 100 plus or minus 10 kilos. Like that's that's pretty typically how it would be presented. But then if it's like a training intervention and you see that they increased their squat by 15 kilos on average, it is very rare to see a confidence interval or a standard deviation on that change of 15. And I think that that's unfortunate for a couple reasons. One is, well, really just one main reason. <laughs> the The biggest thing is like, you, in, you would interpret it different ways based on how big that standard deviation is. So if you see that an intervention improves squat strength by 
like 15 plus or minus 5 kilos, that tells you that for most people, their squat's going up somewhere between 5 and 25 kilos. Like, it's it's pretty good for most people, um, and it's it's reasonably homogeneous. Like, you hear 5 to 25 kilos, that sounds like a big range. That's fairly homogeneous for the literature. If it was, you know, 15 plus or minus 10 kilos, now it's completely different. Like, now you're probably dealing with some subjects who actually got weaker and some who had, you know, ludicrously large increases. Uh, and then it and then it can kind of get the wheels turning. Like, okay, like, maybe this is an intervention that's useful on average, but maybe there are some characteristics that would tend to make it more beneficial for some people and really not appropriate for others. Um, so I can't give much... De- like many details on this, but I'm currently working on a, a data project, looking at some literature. Um, there's like around 80 studies that I was looking at total. And I think overall, 12 of them or 13 of them, something like that, reported like a standard deviation or a confidence interval around mean changes. Um, and that that's one of those things that like that is going to be in the output of any statistical software you use. And it takes like fucking nine additional characters in your text to report that. Um, so yeah, like that's, that's something that would be easy to add that most people just don't. Um, so that, that grinds my gears a little bit. Um, <laughs> this is one that's actually somewhat timely for, for Trex and I. Uh, when a study has hypotheses that don't actually relate to the tests they run or the study that they design. So... And this is like a philosophy of science qualm. Like the scientific method, what you do is is you have an idea, you form a hypothesis to test that idea, you design a study to test that hypothesis, and you use appropriate statistics to make sure that you're analyzing the data appropriately to test the hypothesis to check your idea. Like that, that's that's the basic process. And so like the whole thing starts with an appropriate hypothesis. And dude, there there are a lot of papers in our field that just have hypotheses that are completely inane and not at all related to the way a study was actually designed. So uh, I, I don't even remember the exact example. What what was it in the in the study that you recently looked at? Well, it was just so keeping it vague so as to not call anyone out individually. The the general idea was that it was an intervention comparing two diets. And you know the the, the hypotheses that were given completely they had no regard for the fact that there was a control or like a comparison a comparator diet in the mix. It was just like, we think this diet is going to cause this effect in terms of, you know, fat loss, muscle gain. And the problem with that is like, well, you don't need a comparator group if that's really your hypothesis. And more importantly, your hypothesis tests aren't testing that hypothesis. Right. Yeah. So yeah, just, there's just no congruence at the basic kind of theoretical level. Yeah. Yeah. So like the, the whole point of the study was, we want to see if different responses occur in these two groups. But the hypothesis was like, we think something is going to happen in one group. Right. And so, yeah, it's... I'm not saying that they didn't put any thought into that study before they ran it, but based on the wording of the hypothesis, it certainly appears that they're like... that they designed the study before they actually like 
put thought into what their hypothesis was going to be. Right. Or, or just like didn't verbalize their hypothesis with their statistical concepts in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Which like that's that's science 101. Like if, yeah. if someone has taken like a, a freshman, here's how you do science class. Like they they should know that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like this this is mostly like stat stuff that pisses us off but it is yeah, yeah whatever um so the next one for me is like well like what else is it gonna be it's not be like uh people don't give protein enough love yeah they do like it's all yeah. gonna be stat stuff here yeah whatever like for five listeners who are still here <laughs> we appreciate you uh the next one is probably like just laughably stupid power calculations <laughs> so let me let me pull the curtain back Here's how power calculations actually work in exercise science. You want to run a study, you have a hypothesis, you design the study, and you look and see, like, based on how many lab workers we have and based on what our budget is for this study, we can do this with 20 people. Like, we can put 20 people through this protocol. That's what's going to be, like, doable and feasible for us. And then you pull up G power, <laughs> and you're like, what would my effect size have to be for me to have appropriate power with 20 subjects and, and they just fucking back calculate it and that's that's not how power calculations are supposed to work and if you know what effect sizes are and what power calculations are like most of the time power calculations in the whole field are just absolutely hilarious um so so one of the ones that immediately comes to mind was uh it was it was a study without a training intervention where they were just giving people leucine at meals. I'm pretty sure. Um, so like one group was getting like three grams of leucine with every meal and one group was getting a placebo supplement with every meal. And they wanted to see if that would affect uh, like fat mass and lean mass accretion with with literally just leucine supplementation. And so... You know, if you know anything about that literature, like, eh, leucine supplementation, maybe it does something. Maybe it doesn't really do anything. If it has an effect, it's probably a pretty small effect. Um, so if you wanted to be, you know, if, if you wanted to say that it, it has a non-trivial effect, and that's about all you can say, you would say, like, ah, the effect size we're looking for is a Cohen's D of 0.2, or, like, just over 0.2. That's probably still kind of generous based on yeah. the leucine literature, but whatever you could possibly justify a a slightly above trivial effect size uh or you know if you wanted to be be very lenient you could say maybe this will have a medium size effect which is typically defined as like a cohen's d of 0.5 um they said that it was going to have a large well they didn't verbalize that it was going to have a large effect they were like to detect an effect size of cohen's d of 0.8 we would need 12 subjects per group yeah. And it's like, dude, if you know fucking anything about leucine, you don't you don't expect a large effect size. And, and so, like, just to just to put some some actual numbers on that, a Cohen's D of point eight means that you expect the subjects to change on average by point eight standard deviations, which would basically mean going from average to savage. Yeah. Uh, well, average to somewhere in the neighborhood of like the 70th percentile for some characteristics. So, you know, if they started with like 
I don't know, like 60 plus or minus five kilos of lean mass, give or take. Like that's that's a kind of normal lean mass number for people in the general population. That would mean that you were expecting them to put on four kilos of lean mass just from leucine supplementation in like six weeks, which is fucking ludicrous. Like there's no there's no way that they actually thought that that was going to happen, but it's it's because that's how power calculations work in our field. You say like, what number of subjects can we actually do? Uh, like you were talking about with the meta-analyses, like just having a funnel plot to check to check a box. Like journals expect to see power calculations, but they don't actually expect to see like good power calculations. Yeah. <laughs> because like to, to actually have adequate power for that leucine study, they probably would have needed like 50 plus subjects per group. Uh, actually, probably even more to detect... Uh, effect size of like 0.2 but whatever like they knew they wanted to do this study with leucine they knew they could recruit about 20 subjects and they were like ah let's just plug these numbers in g power and make it work and that's i think that's how power calculations are typically done (laughs) uh but it always grinds my gears uh next one (laughs) another stats thing uh so most if you're if you're doing like a longitudinal training study or diet study and, and you're looking to see if different changes occur in two or more different groups pre to post, typically you're going to run an ANOVA. And if you want to see if different changes occurred between groups, you would look for a group by time interaction effect. And then you do post hoc tests to figure out like in which groups were these changes different. Um, but something that, that used to be more common is getting less common, but I still see it in, you know, a couple studies every couple of months is they will have a significant, they'll have a significant effect for time. And in post-hoc testing, they will see that in one group, there was a statistically significant change pre to post, but there wasn't a statistically significant change pre to post in the other group. And they therefore treat that as a significant difference between groups. Uh, and sometimes, well, I mean, <laughs> sometimes they don't even look for an interaction effect, um, <laughs> which which is concerning. Um, but then a lot of times, like, you know, like maybe it was just underpowered and like maybe there is kind of something there, but the interaction effect wasn't quite significant. And they're misinterpreting their statistical tests, but you know, maybe it can kind of slide. But then sometimes it is just completely egregious where, you know, maybe one group puts like seven plus or minus four kilos on their bench and the other group puts like five plus or minus eight kilos on their bench. And like the actual difference is two kilos, but one had like a a pre to post change with a a p-value of like 0.04 and the other one was 0.07. But it's basically the same change in both groups. So, but one of them cleared that hurdle for significance and the other one didn't. And they're like, well, one was significant. The other wasn't. Big difference between groups. Let's uh, let's run with this. And uh, a little piece of my soul dies every time I see that. Yeah, well, it goes back to that idea of treating like, like p-values. You kind of touched on this earlier, but treating a continuous number as if it's categorical. It's either mm-hmm. less than this or it's not. It reminds me of that uh, that coffee study we talked about a million years oh ago God, where yes. they were like, well, people who drink a lot of coffee, it seems to be fine. And it's like, well, what's a lot? And they're like, you know, three or 25 cups a day. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, yeah. wait a minute. <laughs> you're not going to distinguish between four and 24 in any way whatsoever? Because mm-hmm. like 
seems kind of like a difference, yeah. you know, but, but yeah, it's the same kind of deal. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's, that's another thing that just absolutely drives me crazy. Um, I, I, I had a couple more written down, but they're more like slight annoyances and like things that really grind my gears. And I feel like we've been talking about this long enough. We so have. let's, uh, let's move onward. Yeah, let's do it. Um, actually, this uh, this question is about moving onward. It is theoretically. Uh, the, the question was what are, what other careers we have considered, what we might do in the future, or or what we would do differently if we had the opportunity to go back in time and try it all again. So I, I'll probably go first. You, you you've been talking for a while. Yeah, go yeah. for it. Uh, one thing I will note: this was actually our most asked question. Um, People just want us to stop. <laughs> yeah, you could interpret that as people care about us and they want to know our dreams goals and aspirations or they're like dude just just look at your career options there's got to be something better for you out there can you do anything else yeah yeah um you know i really think i'll probably try to get an academic job like way in the future you know not anytime soon but like realistically if i'm being honest about who i am I cannot retire. I'll die. I mean, I have a very restless mind and I, I love working and I work all the time. And uh, the rare times when I really stop working for like a few days, I go crazy. So that's just completely off the table. And honestly, I think, I think working in an academic job, like as a professor somewhere is a really, really nice situation as you get older. Um, even just like practically speaking, like good benefits, you, as you get older, you're likely to encounter more health problems. Um, but even just like being in a college town around art and culture and young people, like I think that's a really healthy way to grow old, like in terms of like what kind of environment you wish to put yourself in mm -hmm. um, socially and intellectually. Uh, so I have like really thought about this, like I, I really like what I do now and don't plan to change anytime soon. But I have thought like when I'm 60, what am I doing? I, I really do wonder if I'll end up eventually getting a position like that just because it would be a lot of fun. And like, a, like I said, a good way to, mm -hmm. to grow old, I think. So I, I, how do you see that working logistically? Because I mean, the, the route into academia is usually you know, be hyper productive in grad school, maybe get a postdoc position, be hyper productive there, uh, then become junior faculty and publish like a madman to to work your way up the ladder. Do you think that they would uh, that, that they'd spring for someone who was 60 and had never had any sort of academic job before and probably wasn't motivated to churn out 15 pubs a year? I mean, well, they're also looking for professional athletes, and I've got that twice <laughs> over. And no, I mean, well, there's different academic environments. You know what I mean? Like, it, it would be almost certainly at a school that prioritizes teaching more than oh, research. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Because, um, I mean, teaching's fun, too. And, and, like, you could still, you know, do a little bit of research output. But no, I mean, I'm not going to, like, turn 60 and be like, I really need a change of pace, and then be like, you know what I'm going to do? start a research lab at a highly funded institution <laughs> and like you know like no that, no i mean that, that makes sense like we we met and spent most of our time together at unc so like when i picture eric trexler in academia i picture eric trexler at an r1 <laughs> uh but no but no that no. that makes that makes a lot of sense yeah it'd be very different um what about you 
Yeah, so I actually briefly flirted with a couple other careers. Um, so if 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 my wife wasn't as competent and successful, I would probably be coaching people in person. So after graduation, uh, I had a job lined up to coach people at a gym in North Carolina. She got a very, very prestigious journalism internship that placed her in California. Uh, we were already married at that point. Um, didn't, and we were like in the second year of our marriage. So that doesn't seem like an opportune time to kind of try out a distance relationship again. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, her opportunity was awesome and super exciting. And so we went to California. Um, if she wouldn't have gotten that internship, uh, probably would have gone coached at that gym. Um, talking to the owner, he, he kind of had like a, a vision for me to like coach for a couple years and then, um, kind of become like maybe general manager of the gym. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's probably the track that I would have gotten on. Um, and it, it was basically pure chance that I wound up on, on the road I am now. Um, another thing that I briefly flirted with was being a history professor. Um, so I've mentioned this on, on the podcast a few times. I originally went to college as a history major. I got to like the senior seminar, like capstone class. Uh, we were talking about career options. That's what made me realize like I had done no long-term planning. I didn't actually want any of the jobs that I could get with that degree. Yeah, I was just a history major because I liked learning about history. Um, but there for about two weeks, I was like, you know, history grad school sounds very grueling, but I do think it would be kind of fun to be a history professor, like, once I got to the other side of that process. Um, so I, I was, like, briefly flirting with that idea until, I don't know, I'm, like, I'm like vaguely misanthropic, and especially so for people under maybe, like, 23, 24, and so... <laughs> I don't know. I just didn't want to work with college kids all the time. Like the, the most most of like the actual job description other than teaching college kids sounded fun, but most of the job is teaching college kids. Um and so I decided against that. But I did I did briefly flirt with it. Um in terms of what we'd like to do in the future, I have a few ideas. One is uh just buy a tract of land in the country and and do like subsistence farming, but do it with do it with like a nest egg so that when I like get old and have health problems, it wouldn't be like, well, can't work the farm. Guess I'll starve. Uh, where, you know, basically I would be able to have an exit strategy. But uh, like I grew up in the country, grew up helping out on farms when I was young. Um, I like that. That sort of lifestyle agrees with me. So that is an idea uh, kind of rolling around in my mind. Uh, another one, very, very different, is, uh, you know, when I decide I'm done with, with this whole fitness thing, uh, and again, like many years in the future, maybe, again, when I'm like in my 60s or something, like open a food truck, because I love cooking. I've told you to do that. Yeah, like I, I'm not going to do that anytime soon, because that would be a lot of work and be very time consuming. Um, but yeah, like opening up, up a food truck might be fun. I pronounce that weird food truck might be fun or um, just like getting a bed and breakfast and, 
you know, like doing a little housework through the day, cooking stuff in the morning. Like if they also want me to cook them dinner, like that would be super fun. Um, but, but like something related to food. Um, and then last thing, th- people are always surprised when I say this, but I, I say this without a shred of irony. When I was in high school, um, when I was in high school, I wasn't sold on the idea of going to college in the first place. Uh, I worked lawn care and construction over the summers, and I like legitimately enjoyed it. Um, you're outside, like you're in the sun. Like the more I'm in the sun, the better vibes I have. Um, I like lawn care is fun because you get insane instant gratification. Because most things you do, like you're working along and you don't really get the feeling of like having accomplished something until it's done or until you've gotten like a lot of it done. I love mowing grass because you mow the grass, you look behind you, there's no grass anymore. Or like it it is shorter than it once was. Uh, And I I just, I just find mowing grass like very zen. I, I enjoy it a lot. Uh, And then construction, like. I, it's, it's not something I would want to do when I was old. Um, like I, I very much think that that would be, be a problem. Um, but like as, as a job for a young man, like doing that in high school, dude, it was fucking great. Um, like I was working with some people in my family who also work construction. Uh, I liked the other guys on the crew. Um, like it's, it's a very... It was like, you know, it's basically doing like group based activities outside and working with power tools. And I like that. Um, So, yeah, there there was uh, there was a while when I was like convincing, like my parents were trying to convince me and like people around me were trying to convince me to go to college. Um, I was just like, I don't know if I want to go to college. Like, I really like doing lawn care and construction. And, uh, you know. If I would have gone that route, I don't know that I would have regretted it. Like, I, I think I like what I do now more, but I don't think I would have been upset with myself if I went either of those directions. You know, I never, like, thought about doing it long term. But when I was in high school, I worked uh, at a gym. But I, I was like a kid. and it was like, a bi- it was like a big, like, lifetime fitness kind of mm-hmm. branch gym. And uh, so I was like a janitor, basically, you know. Mm-hmm. But... Dude, I would go to work and like, you know, if something needed to be cleaned up, I clean it up. Mm-hmm. But I pretty much leaned on the mop and just talked fitness to people during the time of the day when they were like super enthusiastic about fitness. Yeah, you know, like yeah. everyone's coming in for their hour of the day where they get to just, you know, do their fitness thing. So it was like my life was like living out an online bodybuilding forum. <laughs> But without any negativity (laughs) or like trolling, it was just like really good times and talking fitness and like, Mm -hmm. hey, how's that bench coming along? Elbow feeling better? It was awesome. Like Mm -hmm. I I genuinely had a really good time doing that. And like I never thought of it as like a long-term deal. But like if I was still leaning on that broom, just talking fitness all day, I'm sure I'd be all right. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Hell yeah. All right, uh, so I think that that does it for my answer as well. Let's uh, let's move on. All right. <laughs> All right. So next question we were asked is: Are we mindful about what we share on social media, and what is our thought process behind what we post? 
Yeah, I'll go first. I, I'm, I'm definitely mindful, but probably not in the way they're thinking. You know, like I think when people think of like mindfully curating your social media, it's like I've got a strategy and I'm trying to work towards some kind of image or, or output or something. <laughs> trying to mold your personal brand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And and it, that is not uh, what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> so I was just on a different podcast talking about this. But like, th- this is just me from the heart. I really don't think that many people need my opinion on the topics that I see discussed most mm-hmm. frequently on social media. So like which for anyone keeping score at home like you will notice we have not touched many if any hot button issues in fireside chats. Like yeah. Like we'll we'll talk about random shit but we're not going to be like okay for the next segment Eric, do you believe Tara Reed's allegations? You yeah. know what I mean? Like that's that's just not I I have opinions. I don't I, I'm very much like you. I have opinions. I don't know why anyone would give a single shit what my opinions are. <laughs> That's the thing. Like if I come across a conversation on social media where I think I have a a perspective that is important or valuable, mm-hmm. I will chime in and I do. Mm-hmm. But what I found is that almost never happens because mm-hmm. like the stuff that's getting talked about most frequently, is just not in my area where, yeah. where I'm like, oh, they need to hear what I'm thinking. Um, and, and by the way, I, I, I don't begrudge anyone who does like to interact a lot on social media and talk about various topics. It's just not what I like to do. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So I'll, I'll also see like the inverse of that where people are on social media just to tell everyone to shut up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm like, dude, chill. Like, if people want to chat, let them chat. But like, it's just not for me. Like, I don't really have this burning desire to to make people address or acknowledge or agree with my perspective. Mm -hmm. Like, I have thoughts about a lot of this stuff, but I just rarely get to a point where I'm like, you know, who needs to know my thoughts on this? Everybody. (laughs) Everybody should know. So, like, yeah. And every now and then, I will come across something where I'm like. I really have stuff to say about this that I think people ought to know. Like, mm-hmm. I want to share this. Yeah. But it's almost never, using social media is almost the almost never the right platform for it. Yeah, yeah. You know, because if I have an idea that I think is important or valuable, it's probably related to fitness or research. Yeah. And the avenues for really clearly conveying a good, well-articulated point typically I would lean more toward writing an article, writing a peer-reviewed paper, or even recording something for the podcast. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it's, it's, I'm almost never like the best medium for this is for me to write a seven paragraph Facebook status that is like not searchable and I'll never find it again. Yeah. You know? No, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I, yeah, I, I used to post on social media way more. Like when I, uh, like when my, my, what is it even called? Memories. Like when Facebook notifies me of my memories on a daily basis. Uh, I have a lot of Facebook memories from between three and seven years ago. And then very few in like the last three years. Part of that was, was I just got too busy to really spend time on social media. And part of that was like when, when I was young and somehow even stupider than I am now, I thought that people would care about my opinions about things. And I thought that my opinions were valuable and useful. 
Uh, and as I've gotten older, I realize, like, you know what? I value my own opinions less. Uh, I certainly value... <laughs> so part of it was, like, self-reflection. Like, I'll be scrolling down Facebook, and I'll be like, every single one of you is an idiot. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I don't care about any of your opinions about anything. And I have no reason to believe that if I posted, it would be any less stupid. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, I don't know. I... I am less confident in my own opinions. I I value them less and uh I I I recognize that either other people don't value them or if they do value them they fucking shouldn't, you know? Um and yeah. so so yeah, I have shared less of them over time. Um and yeah, when I post it's generally when I post on Facebook, generally it's either just like random shit uh, mo- most of the stuff I post is like fitness related. Like, Hey, we have a new article out, check it out. Um, or occasionally when I, when I wade into waters that are about something that's kind of like a hot topic going on in the world today, it's usually just to clarify like random technical points that like people may not be aware of. So two examples of that, um, it seems like a lot of people, like their entire content strategy in in these trying times, are I'm going to post about COVID nineteen six times a day. I'm a personal trainer. I am well positioned to share my thoughts about this. Um, I don't do that. I've I've posted about it exactly twice, and both times it was like clarifying math things. Um, yeah. <laughs> the first was like way back in in like early or like mid February when people were like, oh, only like you know, a couple hundred or like a couple hundred or couple thousand people in the U S have it now. Like, why are people freaking out? Like so many people get the flu every year. It was just like, I don't know if you guys understand how exponential growth works. Um, like hundreds can become thousands can become millions like pretty fucking quickly. Um, you know, I wasn't saying like that is what's going to happen. It's just like, this is why people are concerned. Like, yeah try to wrap your head around the concept of of exponential growth and like maybe that will help you understand why people are concerned about it uh and then the other one was just talking about how like uh like linearly scaled graphs aren't great for looking at exponential growth so i was like hey if you're looking at a site that has data about this and there's a log scaling button click the log scaling button and then this is how you interpret a log scaled graph uh so yeah just like random technical stuff the other one so like i i rarely post about pot or uh, politics anymore um something that i always share like every election season when <laughs> uh when people are like this is finally going to be the election where a third party breaks through um the thing is like it kind of may but it, at least in the context of u.s politics and like a first past the post voting system um there's something called Duverger's law and it's not it's not a law like gravity is a law, but it's something that's been observed in basically every political system that has a first past the post voting system where due to people voting strategically, it always collapses to two two dominant parties over time. Um, and so, you know, it's it's not like that is an ironclad law of nature and can never change, but it's like you know, this is something to keep in mind. And, and there are like certain, 
very like niche contexts where like a third party can come through. So like if a if a main party is like completely collapsing, like back when the Whigs collapsed in U.S. history, yeah, um, like a third party can rise up and take its place. Or there can be like maybe like regional parties. Um, that's something that happens in some contexts. But uh, but yeah, so it's it's less like telling people don't vote third party and more like hey if you're if you're giving people this advice like here's something you should be aware of about how first past the post voting systems tend to function yeah um so yeah like i'll occasionally just post stuff to clarify technical points um but yeah that's about it because i when i understand a technical subject well I feel like my input is valuable because I think a lot of other people may not understand those technical subjects. Uh, otherwise, when it's just like how I feel about certain shit, I don't care and neither should you. Um, so that's mostly like Facebook because that's like the only social medium I think about. As far as like what I post on Instagram goes, I don't know. I forget Instagram exists for weeks or months at a time. And when I post something... It's just to let people who care about me know that I'm still alive. Like, that is that is what's going through my mind when I post something on Instagram. Like, hey, still here. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, don't play and my post funeral a, yet. post a good picture of Oswald. Yeah. That's yeah. always good. Yeah, that, that is providing clear value to people. Yeah. I, you know, I, there is one point I'd like to clarify. This came up, like I mentioned, I was talking about this the other day on a podcast, and inadvertently I, I think the way i was putting it they're like you know why do you think you're above interacting on social media and i, I quickly was like no 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 i'm below it yeah like i i really don't believe anyone should care about me at all mm-hmm. it's certainly not my opinions yeah so like th- that's the thing is i'm not like oh look at you losers talking on social media i'm like they're doing fine without me and i don't think they need me for this yeah, yeah, it, it, it's one of those things that can come across pretty poorly. Yeah. When I say I'm scrolling down my timeline and I don't value any of your opinions, I don't mean that as a slight against you or to say that, like, I think my opinions are better. It's like, I think my opinions are just as bad. Like, Right, yeah. I don't think any of us have worthwhile opinions. Uh, I, I think... And yeah, I don't know. The more I started learning about like one thing that i felt really knowledgeable about the more i realized i shouldn't be talking about anything yeah that's except for that (laughs) that's that's precisely what happened to me as well (laughs) yeah you're just like dude wow i've never heard someone talk you know explain what i'm learning now effectively Mm -hmm. i'm probably so bad at talking about everything other than this yeah that i just shouldn't do it anymore yeah no i I don't i agree wholeheartedly all All right right. should we move on (laughs) Dude, fucking Zuckerberg is going to listen to this episode and just like not show our stuff on Facebook anymore because we're we're discouraging the posting life. Mm, that might be true. The death of our podcast. That's a bummer. All right, let's <laughs> let's move on to a, a more a more optimistic a more optimistic topic where we're going to be rays of sunshine. Uh so someone asked how do you develop self-love, a positive outlook on life, and self-confidence? So let's give us the self-love talk, Trex. Well, so I, I kind of have to answer them all at the same time. Because like this really, this question really got me thinking. Um, 
because it was like, how do you develop self-love? And I was like, I don't know because I hate myself. <laughs> and and then I was like, well, okay, but how do you develop a positive outlook on life? I'm like, dude, whoever asked this has never met me because like I comfortably skew negative for sure. <laughs> like if you're in a group of people and you're like, we need someone to spot all the problems, like I'm your guy or all the potential problems that will never happen. Yeah. Um, but then the self-confidence one got me because I was like, you know what? Like, I definitely hate myself and I'm definitely pretty negative, but I actually feel pretty confident most of the time. And that really got in my head. I was like, how does that work? And I think the thing is that like, I, I personally like intrinsically the narrative that I live by, whether or not it makes any sense, you know, like the narrative that guides me is very purpose driven. And in the things I'm currently pursuing, I have a, a pretty high level of self-efficacy. So like, I feel like I'm on a trajectory that's important to me and valuable to me. Um, like I, I think I'm on, you know, on a trajectory that involves doing some cool things. Mm -hmm. And I have a decent amount of confidence in my ability to continue growing and getting better at it and moving forward effectively. Mm -hmm. And so like for me, I just kind of, you know, even though I'm really negative in the immediate term, my general outlook toward the future is quite positive because I really do believe like, yeah, just focus on building, learning, growing, moving forward, stay busy, keep getting better. And like, I do genuinely have an optimistic view about the future, mm -hmm. even though I'm very negative in the, the immediate term. So self-love and positive outlook are really not my area of expertise by any stretch, but I, I, maybe that's a helpful revelation for someone out there who feels similar. And by someone, I mean you, Greg, because you said that this was pretty much how you felt. Yeah, I, I didn't write anything in the outline because I was like, yeah, that's uh, that pretty much covers it. Uh, if I were to make a soundbite about this, like, I think I'm kind of a piece of shit, but I'm generally good at what I do. <laughs> like, I... Uh, yeah, I I also have um, a relatively low self assessment um, in terms of like who I am as a person, uh, and you you could well don't because she'd get annoyed, but you could theoretically ask Lindsay about this. Like I get uh, I get like super depressed and existential around my birthday every year because um, it causes me to like reflect upon who I am and what I've done in the past year. And I just like never like that, you know, uh, mm -hmm. I am somewhat terrified of being alone with my own thoughts. Cause I really don't like myself at all. Um, but at the same time in the thing, like very much exactly what you said in the stuff that I focus on and try to do good at, um, I think I'm pretty good at it. And so I, uh, I'm I'm pretty confident that things that I do I can be good at them um but that I'm just like kind of a piece of shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> like I've said on the show before like if I could find a way to spend less time with myself yeah. I would. Yeah. I would take that bet. I mean I, I would take that trade off any day like yeah. uh you know the ability to just kind of not hang out with me for a while would be great. Mhm. Mm so like I'm with you, but like I I think the fact that I'm pretty uh pretty like purpose driven and like mm -hmm. I feel like I'm 
working and getting better every day. It's the same way. I like look back at the past year or two and be like, dude, you, you could have been way cooler and, you know, had a way more positive impact on the people around you and you could have been way more productive and successful. Yeah. So like looking in the rear view mirror, I'm always like, ugh, I suck. But looking into the future, I'm like, okay, but you know, we've got we've got enough to work with here. Yeah, like that, that's pretty much where I'm at too. Like I, I, I do have like a growth mindset, so I I believe I have the capacity to improve. And when I look back on my life, um, I think that I was like a less shitty person in this past year than I was two years ago or three years ago. So, you know, it, it's it's not like. It's not like I, I view that as an immutable characteristic about myself. Like, I just think I suck, but I used to suck a lot more. And moving into the future, I'll probably still be a, be an utter piece of shit. But, like, <laughs> hopefully less and less so over time. Um, so I guess that's, yeah, I guess that's kind of like a positive outlook on the future. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, we, we keep talking about ourselves, at, you know, as being just like awful people. It probably sounds like we're both like serial killers or something. What Just to put like a more specific like frame on it, one of the things that really bothers me about myself is uh, I wish that I was just better with social interactions. Like I wish I, like I said, like I'm pretty negative. I wish that when people interacted with me, they walked away thinking like, wow, Eric really brightened my day. And I don't think I bring that to people at all. See, so I, I think this is why we're friends because I am also, I'm like, so, okay. If people who know me are listening to this, they're like, Greg's full of shit right now. Like, he he does not hate himself as much as it sounds like. And the thing is, like, I have... I have an un, unrealistically cheery disposition. And that doesn't necessarily mean I'm happy all the time. That just means that I always look really happy. Um, but I, I do think, like... I just have, like, good vibes through, through the day, in general. Uh, and like I said, I don't want to be left with my own thoughts. But if I'm around other people... And I'm not just like locked in my head. Like, I generally do feel pretty good most of the time. And so I think like, there's something about your demeanor that I just find very funny. <laughs> and so you you are generally like, and, and I mean, like Lindsay's the same way. Like you and Lindsay are both kind of like pessimistic and like downers. But for whatever reason... I don't get bad vibes from that. Like, I think I think the way that you uh, present negative possibilities is amusing for some reason, and and it, and it's not that I don't take it seriously. Like, I just I just find your demeanor amusing. Well, I mean, I'm I'm glad, but see, I'm the opposite. Like you mentioned, like if you're as long as there's like that interaction going, you're around people, you're like, okay, I can keep the good vibes going. The thing that frustrates me the most about myself that, that is like, ah, I wish I was just like better is I'm the opposite. If, if I'm around people for a while, mm -hmm. I'm like, come on, Eric, bring the good vibes. But like, I'm such an introvert that I get fatigued mm -hmm. and I'm like telling myself, Eric, stop being grumpy and negative. You're in public, but I just can't. I can't stop. It's like once I saturate my interaction levels, I just, I can't. Uh, okay, so here's what I'll say. Here, here's like a little bit of, of therapy for you. This is going to go horrendously badly. 
So I don't remember what it was like to not know you. Like, I, I remember the first time we we hung out and went to Beer Garden and got some beers. But, like, I don't remember, like, the details of that interaction super well. Like, most of the time we've known each other, we've known each other fairly well. Like, we yeah. we, we went through a trial by fire very early on in our friendship. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't I don't know how you come across to people who don't know you that well. But exactly what you were describing to like basically everyone who knows you it's it's less like god eric's such a downer and more just like kind of an endearing thing where it's just like there he goes again (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's true and, and i mean like people people know we're friends and i've i've literally never heard anyone say like eric's a downer to be around i think like I think I think you're almost so negative that people think it's a bit and <laughs> and it's a pretty good bit. Well, maybe maybe yeah, that's I'm going to I'm going to reemerge in like 20 years and just tell everyone it was like a just a complete Andy Kaufman, you know, three decade long personality bit. Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I wish I, I'm still trying to get better at that. And I, I think I am getting better intermittently. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I don't think it's a linear trend, but intermittently I'm getting better at it. And another thing that I, you know, when I say like, God, I suck and I don't have a positive self-image, it's um, I wish I was more present at the moment during social interactions. Yeah, I yeah. really suck at that. I get so in my own head about whatever the hell I'm thinking about mm-hmm. that I will, I honestly think it's why I have a bad long-term memory. I, I think I never processed most of the stuff that was happening around me because, like, mm-hmm. I spent my whole life literally in my own head, mm-hmm. barely taking in the things around me. And it's just something I continue to work on and I, I have to accept. Can I give you a tip for that? Yeah. Turn your phone off, put it in another room, and have, like, two beers. Yeah, but, dude, like, you know how people have, like, a bedtime routine and they're like, oh, I'll, like, read and it'll help me relax. And, mm-hmm. like, dude... My bedtime routine for the last 15 years has been I lay down in silence and stare at the ceiling and think hard. <laughs> and it's almost like I need it. Like I need to just like, I don't know. I, I, I can't explain it. But yeah, I, I spent a lot of time in my own brain thinking about anything in particular. Fair enough. But I'm working on it. I'm okay, so here here is an actual tip. Not for developing self-love. That's overrated hippie garbage. Um but for like positive outlook on life or at least like your own life and uh, developing self-confidence, I think that there's a lot of, and I mean like there's probably people who are like psychologists listening to this and they're going to tear this advice apart. Like going back to what we were saying about social media, my opinions are all terrible. This is, this is probably bad advice, but whatever. It's a fireside chat. That's the whole point of, of these. Um, so something that I think helps me at least is um like being really purposeful about trying to get better at things and also being purposeful about either like journaling so like actually writing it down or just like making a point of like intensely mentally cataloging your process and stuff um so like as you develop new skills or you improve the skills you have it's less like, you know, you're getting better, but you don't feel great about it because, like, you're still not as good as you could be. Um, 
and you haven't put enough time between like when you started trying to improve and where you are now that you can really look back and and notice like oh night and day difference um so i think that if you're very intentional about trying to improve at stuff and making making notes along the way about like concrete things that you are improving at and are getting better at then you can kind of like build up a file of that of you know essentially here's all this here's all the shit i've tried uh and here are all of the concrete ways that i've improved and gotten better and uh hey there's there's beginning to be a lot of them uh i can feel pretty good about you know my my ability to learn and master new skills and uh then i th- i think that that's kind of like the key for self confidence like it, there's there's a difference between knowing you're good at something and knowing that you are good at getting good at things if that makes sense um and and so i i think that's one of the reasons i like cooking so much cuz there's so many different cooking skills um and like as you know as you practice them you just get better over time um and so i've learned and gotten so much better at so many different things in the kitchen that helps me kind of like generalize it and be like dude i've like learned and gotten better at like so much shit like i'm pretty good at getting good at stuff um and that doesn't mean that i think that i'm good at everything but it's like i think that i could get pretty good at most things if I tried. Um, And I think that's true of most people. Um, You know, like there are innate differences in aptitude and like different realms. And like, there are things that I'm good at and things that I'm like naturally bad at, but even the stuff I'm naturally bad at, I've, I've made note of myself improving in enough different domains that, you know, I don't think I could be, like, world-class good at everything. But I think I think I could get to the point that I was, like, adequately good at most things that I wanted to get good at. Um, and, like, that's kind of, like, the point that I've gotten to with, like, my general self-confidence. So it's it's not, like, self-confidence that I could go out and do anything right now and be great. Like, I think I'd, I'd suck absolute shit at most things. But, you know, given enough time, I think I could be pretty decent. Um, and so I... I I personally derive a lot of self-confidence from that. Um, And dear listener, maybe you could too. Yeah. Now we've talked about a lot of stats this episode and some, uh, we really cracked our brains open and did some introspective thinking out loud about who we are to to wrap it up. Can we do some lighthearted? Somebody asked for some outlier things we've seen in the gym. Our boy, Patrick Umphrey. Yeah. Excellent. Speaking of skills, excellent magician. And just a just a great dude. Speaking of someone who is just like twenty four seven good vibes. Oh dude, yeah, Patrick is one of the most fun people to be around. Yeah, and he has one of the most fun and just unrelentingly positive uh, presences on social media. He runs a group called Eat Train Progress. Correct. Yeah, and correct. if you're on Facebook, you should join that Facebook group. It is, it's great. It's like. It, it, it's one of the few places you can go on Facebook where interacting with people feels like a warm hug. Yeah, no, it's it's awesome. Um, but yeah, he 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 was like, hey, so what what are some like just outlier things you've seen in the gym that are just crazy? And I think I might have told the story before. I'll keep it really brief just in case. But I was working at a, or I was like kind of volunteering at a gym with some like nutrition stuff, 
and it was a bunch of players getting ready for the NFL combine. This dude comes walking out of the gym, finished his workout. He's a running back. Looks like, I mean, you name the Federation. If he steps on stage, he wins. Just cut <laughs> out of stone. Yeah. Insane physique. He's been there training from like 7 to 3 in the afternoon, just getting after it. And uh, we're talking to him. We're like, all right, so what would you have for breakfast? He just he looks at us like like it's the most irrelevant question you could ask him. Like, <laughs> that's weird. Like, it'd be like, hey, what's your girlfriend's name? You know, he's like, nothing. And uh, just like totally irrelevant. Why are you asking? You know, we go, okay, well, what would you have during your session? Water. Yeah, like, do you take a break and get a snack in between? No. Seven to three, like all day training. Mm-hmm. What do you plan to have when you get home? I, I don't know. I'll find something. This dude had that physique and literally has never, never even considered, like, I wonder what I should eat sometimes. Yeah. It was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. And I guarantee if you looked at him, you would look at him and immediately say, that dude's on gear test him now Mm -hmm. and it's like he's like the guy i always think of when i see people making claims on the internet like oh so and so is like he's you know totally juiced on gear and i'm like dude there's i've never been more sure of anything in my life that that guy's natural because you can't even get him to eat breakfast well i mean no here's what you need to understand he's he's investing all of his time and mental effort into running the exact right compounds and timing everything perfectly to beat all of his drug tests. Post-cycle therapy, on and off. Yeah, and he just doesn't have the mental space and energy to think about food after that. Exactly, yeah. But I'm just like, dude, there's there's no way. There's no way. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, to me, I was just like, okay, I'm never going to accuse anyone of anything again. That's it for me. (laughs) There are just genetic gods among us, Mm -hmm. and you just have to accept it. Um, but what about you? What are some cool outliers? Uh, so, so one is probably uh, the craziest, like short term, uh, client, like before and after strength thing that I've had, uh, in one of the craziest that I've seen. So, um, not going to name any names because potentially personal information, but I had a female client one time who, I had previously known and had previously trained with some, and she was already like pretty, pretty strong. Um, I think, I think her best deadlift at the time, like to that moment had been either like 380 or 385, um, which this was several years back. Like people may be listening to this now and being like, ah, there's so many female powerlifters who do that. But like, this was a while ago. Like th- that was that was like a pretty pretty crazy number for a female lifter at the time. Um, and so she came to me and she was like, "Hey, uh, you know, I'm trying to get back into lifting. I've had to take some time off for various reasons. Um, you know, can can you help me with that?" And so I was like, "Sure. Like I'll write a program for you." Um, her starting deadlift number was like two eighty. So you know, she she was clearly detrained. And I was thinking like, okay, over the next three or four months, if we can get you back to somewhere in the neighborhood of like 380 on the deadlift, which is where you'd been prior, I'll be pretty happy with that. Because, you know, she'd she'd been out of the gym for like over a year at this point. Um, So (laughs) I was concerned early on that like, that it just wasn't going well, because 
she was very busy and didn't check in very often. And when she did check in, it would just be like, oh yeah, doing the workout. Things are going pretty well. Um, I think the only thing we tweaked the whole time, she was just like, hey, the close grip bench is like kind of bugging my elbow a little bit. Can we sub something else in? So we sub something else in. That was like the only program tweak. You know, we maybe communicated like three times. And I was like, well, I hope it's going well. And then uh, she finished up four months of training checked back in and she was like oh I'm so happy like I hit some numbers uh and I was like what did you do and she had taken her deadlift from 280 to 425 in four months um and and that's not all it gets crazier um the reason that she had taken time off of lifting like we didn't talk about this beforehand uh and I mean I guess she just didn't want to volunteer the information she had had bone cancer in her femurs. Wow. Um, and like, I'm not an oncologist. I don't know what... Hey, don't put yourself down like that. <laughs> I, I, I don't know if one should expect to gain all of one's strength back and get even stronger. But my my gut reaction is that like femurs are kind of important for deadlifting. And so, you know, maybe there would be some sort of like long-term, at least like slight weakness from that. I don't know. Um, but yeah, she put like 145 pounds on her deadlift in four months. And again, a lot of that was like recouping strength that she had lost. Um, but that was still like a 45 pound PR over her prior best. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so, so that was wild. And (laughs) probably the wildest thing I ever heard. Uh, so this is, this is a secondhand story. Um, I've told it before with the names included, I don't think on the podcast, but I don't know how much of this I'm like supposed to share and yeah, put I'll names on. anonymize it. Yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll anonymize it, but Trex can back me up. He, he knows who these people Correct, are. Correct. Yeah. Um, so someone I know was coaching for, um, someone who's like really big in like the off season football training and like combine prep world. And, um, one of the athletes that he was assigned to do their off-season training for was a like rather diminutive, very, very good running back in the NFL. And uh, so they they were doing four workouts a week. So it was like four days of conditioning. And as far as lifting goes, it was two upper body days and two lower body days. And this athlete um said like hey like like he only signed up for the conditioning work and the lower body training didn't sign up for the upper body training uh and so my buddy was like hey man like you know i get it you're running back like lower body strength is more important for what you do but like it's not gonna hurt to get your upper body stronger as well just so you know you you can deal with the 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 topsy-turvy world of getting tackled by 300 pound men in the nfl and, uh, and this individual was like, nah, man, I can't do it. Uh, and my friend is like, no, like, like, why not? Why can't you train upper body? He's like, my arms get too big. And then I, I get a fumbling problem. Uh, and <laughs> so arm is so big. He cannot comfortably cradle a football. Right. Yeah. W- which makes, that's why I mentioned that this was like a fairly diminutive fellow. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, not super long arms and an NFL size football is pretty big, but you know, that on its face seems ridiculous. Like I can't do three months of upper body training in the off season because then my arms will just explode and I can't carry a football anymore. 
Um, and so my friend was like, no, like that's, there's no way that's true. Uh, and, and so I forget the detail. He either got him to agree to four weeks or six weeks of upper body training. It was one of the two. Um, and he, he'd previously done some. So again, these aren't like completely new gains. Some of it is kind of like muscle memory. Um, but I believe it was four weeks. So tested him on close grip bench, five rep max, just to kind of get a feel for where he was at and what loads he should be training with. Uh, and his starting five rep max bench press was like 275, which, you know, that's a good number for someone who doesn't bench press, but it's not out of this world for an NFL running back by any means. Uh, so he trained him for, like I said, I believe four weeks. It may have been six. Uh, retested his bench number at the end. That was like the end of their uh, their agreed upon time that he was going to subject himself to upper body training. Uh, retested his bench number. And if memory serves, his five rep max close grip bench was either 425 or 455. <laughs> um, he'd put a solid inch and a half on his arms. And as soon as he finished the last rep of close grip, he racked it. He like found a football and like, made a show of like it not being able to fit in his arms anymore. He's like, see, I told you my arms get too big. <laughs> and uh, yeah, then he didn't do any upper body work the rest of the summer in an attempt to trim his arms down enough to uh, carry a football. And to the best of my knowledge, uh, never did any upper body work again. And so my buddy told me this story. And I, I wanted to get a feel for like how feasible it was. Like, like you were saying, like, how could it be that someone's arms are so big that they can't hold a football? Um, and so, like, I Google image searched the guy because I, I remembered him being, like, a pretty brawny dude. Like, just a little bowling ball, like, busting through the line. Yeah. I never, like, noticed how big his arms were. Dude, I fucking Google image searched the guy. <laughs> his arms were fucking enormous. Yeah, he looks like Lee Priest yeah, like, as a running back. Like, unbelievable. And yeah. so... His arms were huge, even if he was training arms all the time. But like, yeah, so that, that, uh, you just, you know, any picture you've seen of him, he probably hasn't trained arms in at least 12 weeks. Yeah. And almost certainly longer than that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, that, that's a secondhand story, but I, I know the individual who told it to me. Well, I, I have no reason to doubt it. Yeah. I mean, I, I was telling you, um, I, I used to do some testing on some retired NFL athletes, mm -hmm. uh, body composition stuff. And I, I just vividly remember this one time a dude comes in and his, the sleeves on his shirt are just screaming, you know, like they're just <laughs> stretched to the last thread. Like his arms are bursting out of his shirt. And I'm like, dude, how often you lift in these days? And he's like, uh, retired, like... <laughs> It was years. I mean, like retired X number of years ago. Haven't touched a weight since. Whenever I do, I have to buy new clothes. <laughs> <laughs> until until hearing his story, or until going through that, I would not have believed the story you told. Mm -hmm. But uh, I believe it very much. Yeah. It's crazy. Again, like, so I, I don't want to like name names and sound like I'm flexing or anything like that. But uh, Jim, I used to coach at did have a few like NFL athletes who would train there in the off season. And dude, it's, it's almost like they're an entirely different species. Yeah. Like I, I am not someone who has bad genes for building muscle and getting strong, but 
every single one of them, if they if they like thought about powerlifting too hard, they would break every world record. <laughs> like it, <laughs> yeah. it's it it's outrageous. And and that that's one of the reasons why in in the whole like natty or not type thing, I kind of feel like I don't care about your opinion unless you have worked with like extreme outlier athletes. Um, just because like w- when your when your consideration is what what can the freakiest of the freaks do, but the freakiest of the freaks you've ever met is like the biggest guy who goes to your gym. You fundamentally have not experienced how extreme physiological outliers can be yeah um and so yeah i mean i I feel like powerlifting is getting to the point where some of the top guys in the sport are like extreme outliers i I didn't think that was the case so much several years back right and when i told people like oh like all of the records are going to be like two three hundred pounds above where they are now people are like you're crazy uh and time has proven me right um so I, I do think that some of like the upper crust in the sport now is is getting to that like extreme outlier range. But yeah, like NFL or even like D one college athletes, um, they are they are physiological outliers to a degree that you can hardly conceive of unless you've worked with that population. I totally agree. All right. Well, I think that that probably does it for today's episode, right? I think it does. All right. All right. So uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, thank you for sticking around after our our statistical complaining early in the episode. If you want to submit a question either to our, our normal Q&A podcast, which we will do another one of at some point if Eric has me back, uh, you can submit that or questions for Fireside Chat, just completely off topic stuff at tiny.cc slash sbsqa. Uh, if you're listening to this on some podcast platform, um, you know, give us a five-star rating if you like it. If you don't like it, please be kind. Don't rate us. Uh, or do. Actually, honestly, like the negative reviews are some of my favorite. But, but don't just leave a low-star review yeah, and yeah, no comment. Yeah. Like, it's got to be a funny review. Yeah, so here here's the gambit, right? If you love the show, leave us a five-star review. If you hate the show, do also leave a review, but don't be don't be a pansy about it. Like tell us why. Lay into us. Yeah. Like our our one-star reviews are are some of like the highlights of my week. Uh, and we haven't gotten any good ones in a while. So so don't don't leave like a joke one-star review like if you actually like the show because like if we get too many bad reviews that That's does actually hurt us. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, if if you've been wanting to leave a negative review, uh, you know, attach some text with it. We would yeah. we would greatly appreciate if it. If you're going to be negative, at least be be funny about it and very very specific. Right. Uh, um, and if and if you're listening on YouTube, like comment, subscribe. One thing I did want to bring up, uh, so I run a, a podcast called the Stronger by Science podcast, not Fireside Chats. That's my show. I'm the host. Uh, we are going to be back in two weeks. So we have been trying to get something out every single week. We're actually going to be back in two weeks. We're getting back on our typical schedule of every other week. Uh, and it's going to be, we're, we're going to be putting in some more 
hard-hitting, scientifically rigorous content. So it takes a little bit of prep time to get those ready. It's not just us talking about freaky athletes we've met. All right. uh, So I think that does it. Hope everyone is having a good day, having good vibes, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.